Let's have a word of prayer together as we get started. Lord God, as we begin this uh, new season of study, a uh, new season of being together in the life of the church and fellowship and friendship, uh, we are continuing to study your word and continuing to learn from your spirit as it moves in our hearts and minds to continue to shape us and mold us into the people whom you would have us to be, into people who know your love and your forgiveness, your inspiration and your guidance, your direction and your friendship as we live our lives in the light of Jesus. So continue that process in us, Lord. We know it never ends until we go to be eternally with you. And we welcome it. We welcome all the things that you have to offer to us. So be with us as we open your word now for the sake of Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen. Friends, before we dive into Genesis, I want to introduce somebody to you who many of you already know in a sense. Um, seven years ago this spring, Helen and I made our first journey into Lebanon and Syria and met uh, several young theological students, many of whom now have graduated and are serving the church in Lebanon and Syria. Some of them are continuing to study, and one of them in particular we've taken a great interest in, and our congregation has been supporting her work and her ministry, and she now is studying at Columbia Theological Seminary in Decatur, uh, Georgia, a suburb of Atlanta, and uh, she and her fiancé are here with us for several weeks uh, for the purpose of spending the Christmas holiday and also so that they can get married a week from Saturday in our chapel. And so, Nura Eid, Nura, please stand up and wave at everybody. I know. <laughs> Um, she's getting sick and tired of my parading her around, but I keep telling her, Nura, you need to meet these people, and even better, they need to meet you. So uh, Nura is from uh, the town of Bludan, uh, not far out of Damascus. It's up in a beautiful mountain area, and many of you have heard bits and pieces of her story before. So when we take a break here, I'd encourage you to, uh, to meet Nura and welcome her, and we're hoping that they're going to be able to extend their stay here perhaps to the end of January, and um, we still have about 30 pounds of beans and some flour and salt left in our, in our pantry. Uh, and at any rate, we hope they're going to get to stay for a while longer and have more opportunity to be among us, and especially for you to get to know her. And Andre, her um, fiancé, is also a theology student, uh, quite a scholar, always wants to ask hard theological questions, to which I have the perfect answers. Wouldn't you agree, Nuda? Always, yes. <laughs> At any rate, so great to have everyone this morning. Let's dive into Genesis. <clears throat> we are in the midst of studying and journeying with Abraham and Sarah as they are continuing to live with God and with each other and see how God's plan for their lives is fulfilled. So we're going to pick up with chapter 20 right now. And I'm going to go ahead and read all of this because it is so important for us to get the text of Scripture inside of us. 
I know sometimes we read something once, maybe uh, give it sort of a cursory look, and we think we've gotten it all. And with lots of material that we read, that's the way it is. But with Scripture, there's always something new, always something that can come back to us, always something that can challenge us. So the business of reading Scripture, as far as our tradition is concerned, really the Christian tradition and the Jewish tradition, the business of reading Scripture is extremely important for what we call our spiritual formation. So here we go, Genesis 20. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the region of the Negev and settled between Kadesh and Shur. While residing in Gerar as an alien, Abraham said of his wife Sarah, she is my sister. And King Abimelech of Gerar sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, You are about to die because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a married woman. Now, Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you destroy an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, She is my sister? And she herself said, He is my brother. I did this in the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart. Furthermore, it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all that are yours." So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things, and the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? How have I sinned against you that you have brought such great guilt on me and my kingdom? You have done things to me that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What were you thinking of that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it. Because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, This is the kindness you must do me. At every place to which we come, say of me, He is my brother." Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male and female slaves and gave them to Abraham and restored his wife Sarah to him. Abimelech said, My land is before you. Settle where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Look, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is your exoneration before all who are with you. You are completely vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed fast all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Okay, let's start to take this apart. You've heard this story before, right? Right? When Abraham and Sarah and the household go into Egypt because they need food, Abraham says to Pharaoh. Sarah is my sister, and Pharaoh takes Sarah and then gives her back and is upset with Abraham because Abraham has lied to him. There is a new wrinkle in the story, though, and I've yet not yet had the time to, to research this and see if anybody makes anything out of it, but 
What does Abraham say about Sarah in this story that we did not learn about Sarah in the story with Pharaoh? Abraham says, she's my half-sister. She's my half-sister. Therefore, Abraham, in some sense, is justified in saying she's my sister, right? They share the same father. And so maybe that helps um, clean up Abraham's reputation just a little bit, right? Uh, still, though, he has taken Sarah as his wife, and perhaps we could also say that that relationship of husband and wife supersedes the relationship of brother and sister. Um, we can't make a whole lot out of it uh, because that's not a big issue for the story. The issue for the story is that once again, Abraham has tried to protect himself in the situation. And here Abraham says to Sarah, remember, before we even came into this land, this was going to be our story, right? This was going to be our story. And now twice the story hasn't worked out very well. And so the, the interesting thing in this story, the thing about which more is made as we read the text and, and see how much uh, is discussed, is, is the story of Abimelech. Okay, what does Abraham say to Abimelech or what does he say about why he told this, this uh, white lie, if you will, about Sarah? Abraham says to Abimelech, I didn't think that there were any God-fearers here in this land. And in order to protect myself from being killed so that you could take Sarah, that's perhaps what would have been done if Abimelech had seen Sarah and said, oh, I want that one for my harem, so I'll kill the husband and then take her, right? Uh, Abraham, Abraham thinks that's the context he's moving into. But Abimelech, Abimelech is talking to God. Did you pick up on that? Abimelech says something to God. Now, we haven't heard anything about Abimelech. And as far as we know, the only people who know the one true God so far are the people of Abraham's family. And yet here's Abimelech pops up. And God and Abimelech have some kind of a relationship with each other. Now, we have also met other people already in the story who are not part of the Abraham clan who also have a relationship with God. Do you remember the king of Salem, Jerusalem? Remember his name? Melchizedek. Yes, Melchizedek. And so all throughout the scriptures, including in these very, very early stories, we see that God is at work and people are responding to God outside of the formal community of faith, if you will. And so I would propose a question to you. And let's, can we get the microphones going here? Uh, I'll give you a little pre-warning. All right, Terry, we're going to make sure you get your steps in because it's after the holidays now. <laughs> and Robin, same thing. Good. Um, have you ever encountered, have you ever met people that you didn't think knew God that maybe by something they said or something they did, turns out they do know something about God? Has that ever happened with you? You want to share stories about that or questions or comments about that? Yeah, right over here. Um, this isn't someone I met personally, but um, I was very moved this um, Monday night. Um, not a big football fan, but... It was on, and when that player went down mm -hmm. in that horrible accident, when I saw everyone go on their knees, I thought, there is hope. Yes, 
Yes, yeah. You know, I had that same reaction. I mean, everybody is saying we have to pray for him, right? Even, even people, I, I mean, I don't, I don't know any of those people that were on national TV. There, there is a large contingent of, of people within the NFL with most uh, professional sports, especially here in the U.S., um, that profess faith in Christ. But then you have everybody saying we need to pray. Yeah, isn't that fascinating? Yeah, isn't that fascinating? And we will continue to pray for him. Yeah, DeMar, is it Damar? Is that his first name? Yeah, yeah. Good point. Someone else, where have you seen faith bust out when you didn't necessarily expect to see it? Nowhere else? Boy, you lead dull and boring lives. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Get the mic. There we go. I think we see it when they're tragedies. Mm -hmm. People's faith rises at that point. Mm -hmm. Some that's been dormant and some that's been active. Yeah. But I think we see that over and over again. Yet recently there has been the cry, no more talk about your thoughts and prayers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We do. When tragedy strikes, that's often a time when people turn to God and when God can actually do something with people uh, because he has their attention, right? Uh, and yes, it's true that a lot of people say now, you know, tragedy strikes, we don't, we don't want your thoughts and prayers. And there's a, there's a corollary to that then. What we want is your action, right? We want you to do something about the things that are creating the thoughts and prayers. And, and there's, there's something to be said for that, of course, uh, uh, although the thoughts and prayers. I, and I've all, it's been interesting, thoughts and prayers. What's the difference between, I guess a thought is you just think of somebody, but you don't think of them in relationship to God or invite God to be involved in their life in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, yeah. Where else do you see faithfulness or faith present in people where you don't expect it? Let me take you to the New Testament for a moment. A Roman centurion sends his military aid to Jesus, asking Jesus to heal his daughter. And Jesus says of the Roman centurion, a pagan, non-Jew, military occupier, he says there's more faith in him that I've seen in a lot of other places in Israel. Jesus talks to a Samaritan woman, a half-breed, who's looked down on by the, the so-called purebred Jews in southern Israel in the region of Jerusalem. And she talks about her faith in God. Jesus was continually calling out from people their, their faithfulness, and he was continually pointing to faith in people that are outside the community. Have any of you grown up in a context where your own church community was constantly worried about the boundaries of who was in and who was out? Any of you grow up in that kind of thing? I didn't grow up in that so much as I've been exposed to it many, many different times. And, and that's part of the human condition, right? We want to know who's in and who's out, who's a member, who's not a member. And some Christian communities, other faith communities as well, seem to be preoccupied with that question, right? If you have not said X, Y, and Z, if you have not done A, B, C, then you are not part of the faith. And 
and therefore there are consequences. If you're not a member of this church, if you haven't said these things, then what's the implication? You're going to hell. You're not going to have God in your life, right? And But all throughout the scriptures, and here's a good example. Here's someone who does have God in his life, who doesn't fit any of the criteria of membership, if you will, that, that we already are beginning to understand in the people of Abraham. And so that's one of the reasons that, that I think good theology wants to say that we know where the center of our faith is. We know what the, what the centrifugal force is that pulls us together, right? The love of God expressed in Jesus and mediated to us by the continuing power of the Holy Spirit. That's the center. But as we move out from the center, we cannot judge where the boundaries are. Does that make sense to you? And so that gives us, I think, I continually get the question from people uh, that goes something like this. My friend is a Jew, or my friend is a Republican, or my friend is a Democrat. How can God possibly save a Jew or a Republican or a Democrat? <laughs> or a Muslim, or a Buddhist, or even an atheist, right? Well, it's clear from scriptures that the outer boundaries of God's love, we don't understand. Only God understands them. And so that's part of the story of what's going on here with Abraham and Abimelech. We see great faithfulness in Abimelech, right? And we see really Abimelech comes off uh, looking more ethical and moral and upright and upstanding and <laughs> Uh, to use completely anachronistic terms, Abimelech is a better Christian than Abraham is here, even though we're several hundred years before Christianity, right? That's another question people often ask to say, you know, I've got Christian friends that are just horrible people. Yep, you sure do. A lot of them are in the village church, by the way, but no, that's another story, <laughs> right? And I've got other friends who have no faith, but they're fantastic people. Well, you know what? God works where God is, is going to work. That's just the way that is. So that's part of the story of Abraham and Abimelech. And of course we see that Abraham messes up again. God protects Abraham and Sarah. But God continues to call Abraham what? His prophet. Throughout the story, we've talked about this before, Abraham and Sarah mess up time and time again. They, they are struggling to find their way in their relationship with God and the ways that they're living their lives, just like you and I are but God continues to have his hand upon Abraham and has a plan for Abraham and Sarah and for the family. What else do you make of this? Anything else in this story itself that pops out to you as, yes, right over here? Let's get the mic on you. Sarah's a little bit older than I am, and yet she is apparently a very sexy, beautiful woman. Yes. So something has happened between the last year or so when God said, you will have a child uh -huh. in spite of this. Uh -huh. yeah. So God did some miracle, miraculous things with Sarah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I, there's hope for us. There's <laughs> I, and has someone said that you all are not sexy, beautiful women? I mean, <laughs> right, right. Okay, here's the territory where I just want to get straight to the men's Bible study tomorrow morning. and just <laughs> We're not even going to go there. <laughs> oh, 
my, yeah. I, you bring up a good point, and we'll, we'll, we'll come to that in, in a little bit later in some of our texts. I mean, Abraham and Sarah are so old, and, and yet they're still very vital, aren't they? Right? There's something going on there. We can't, we can't overanalyze in some sense that aspect of who Abraham and Sarah are too much. Right? We, we try to make scientific sense of it. You know, we, we want, I, I know that the reason you're bringing that up is that you want to find out what were they eating? What were they drinking? <laughs> right? <laughs> Let's go back and figure that out. <laughs> we all would love to do that. Um, the interesting point is that God is doing what God is going to do, right? Anything else out of this story? That's a good one. I'm going to preach that one sometime. <laughs> Yeah, to a men's group. It's a, yeah, here we go. Um, I have a really good girlfriend, and she's agnostic. Mm -hmm. And recently, we've been talking about religion a lot. And I've been telling her about our Bible studies here and inviting her and saying, why don't you come and listen to, you know. And I've been telling her about the prophets. And she goes, what are prophets? And she didn't know anything about them. So I've been telling her about Abraham and Sarah. And she's starting to get really interested cool. in she goes what do these prophets do and I said well they're kind of setting the way I don't know what would you say Jack I don't know exactly you know the yeah yeah the that's a really that's so a, important yeah that's a great question um, I'll remind you in the book of Hebrews Jesus is called a prophet and a priest and a king those are all different ways people had of looking at people that God calls to serve in particular ways to serve the needs of the people. So a prophet, we think of, in our modern usage of English, okay, in this country, okay, American English, not English English, which is an unintelligible language still. Um, but in American English, <laughs> I love to insult people, this is great, right? In American English, when you talk about a prophet, we think of somebody who says, it's going to rain tomorrow. Or uh, Kevin McCarthy is not going to be elected Speaker of the House, who foretells the future, right? A prophet foretells the future. And that is a very, very limited and e even in some ways inaccurate view of what a prophet is in Scripture. Here's the way to start understanding that. A prophet is someone to whom God has spoken who is going to do something and usually also say something that communicates what God wants to communicate to the people at a particular point in history, at a particular time, okay? The business of prophecy is not so much about telling the future as it is about telling the truth of God in a given situation. Sometimes telling the truth leads to a conversation about how the future might play itself out. If you say, God says, you are sinning, you are going away from my pathway that I have given you, and it's going to end up in your ruin and destruction. That's sort of fortune-telling, right? But that's like saying that if you are driving towards the edge of a cliff at 100 miles an hour and you don't change direction and put on the brakes, you're going to go off the cliff, right? That's prophecy too. That's telling the future. But it's more interested in what's going on right now and comparing what's right now with how we are living with what God would want to say to us and how God would have us live. 
and then drawing out some of the implications of what that would be. Does that make sense to you? And so Abraham is not a, not a prophet in the sense of Isaiah or Ezekiel, right, proclaiming God's message to the people. Abraham is a prophet in the sense of through his life, through how he's living his life, he is witnessing to, he is a testimony to, an example of the truth that God is making of Abraham's people, a great nation, and through the life of that nation, God is revealing what God wants for all of God's people. Does that help you understand? Yeah, prophet, prophet. In that sense, Jesus is a prophet. In that sense, John the Baptist is a prophet, telling God's truth, listening to God, and God needs to speak to you. God doesn't pick everyone for the role of prophet, per se. Not that we can't all listen to God. Of course we do. And God speaks to us, and we learn the truth of God. But the role of prophet goes a little bit further to say a prophet is someone who's going to proclaim through word and deed what God's truth is, right? Okay. Um, Hosea. Hosea is a great uh, study in prophecy. Uh, Hosea's, one of, part of Hosea's big message uh, to Israel was that they were prostituting themselves with other faiths, other religions, other gods. And, but God would call them back into a relationship with them, even though that they had been unfaithful to God. And Hosea talked about that a lot, and then he demonstrated it in his life. He married a prostitute and said, this is an example of how God will call you back into a relationship, that God will forgive you. So that, that shares a little bit of, of light on the idea of Abraham as a prophet in what he's doing in his life that's telling the truth of God. Good question. Thanks for focusing on that word in, in this text. Anything else in this text that's fascinating to you? We got, yes, over here. Grab, grab the mic, quick. Hold your hand up. Just um, interested in the part about when Abraham said that he told Sarah to be his sister, pretend he's his sister before. He didn't think anyone had the fear of God in them. But when Ambimelech told the servants that he had to give Sarah back, mm -hmm. they were all filled with fear because God might kill him. Mm -hmm. So they did fear God. Yes, absolutely they feared God. Yeah, yeah. Why wasn't that? Why is, it, why is that something that's not known then to people? Yeah, so the sense is Abraham and Sarah continue to wander around, right? They move. Uh, they, they are nomadic Bedouin people. That's part of the story of, of, the of the Hebrew people, is that they are Bedouins, right? Uh, the word Hebrew, actually, uh, older Aramaic, I think, and Nura knows more about this than I do, so I'm treading on thin ice here. But the word Aperu is an old word for Hebrew, and it relates to the Bedouin tribes of, of the Middle East. Is that correct? Okay, thank you. Whew. Got through there. Nuda speaks, of course, Arabic as her native language, and so studying Hebrew was a really, really simple thing for her, and I, you know, that's one of the reasons I don't like her, because she was so good at Hebrew. <laughs> um, so, so, Abraham and his people are, are Bedouins. They're moving constantly, and they're moving into a territory, and they don't know what they're going to find. Right? They don't have Google Maps and they can look it up and look at all the, everything that's going on and have all these, you know, these Yelp reviews of, of what kind of person Abimelech is. And so Abraham does not expect to find anybody who fears God. Okay? And by fear we mean reverence, of course, who is in a relationship with God. And yet that's exactly what Abraham finds. And so it's clear that God has been speaking to lots of people. 
And lots of people have been responding to God. They, they are not the particular people who are chosen to, to exercise God's plan of salvation for everybody, to, to be the light to the nations. But that doesn't mean God has not been speaking to them. And so Abimelech's people are worried because they understand in some sense that they have, by, by Abimelech bringing Sarah as his wife, that they have transgressed the law of God. And of course, the text uh, takes pains to note that even though Abimelech has brought Sarah into his household, they still have not had marital relations with each other. But they're worried that, you know, they said the wombs of everyone is closed up. There is a direct understanding in, in ancient times that, that has been lost in, in much of our life today that, that understands that as you follow God's pathway, you might get into serious trouble and have serious issues, but it's not going to come from God. If you walk outside of God's pathways, you're going to bring even more pain and suffering upon yourself. And they were directly worried about that. And so that's part of what we see going on here too. But again, to me, the main point of all of this is that we need to look for where God is at work in people and in situations where we think God does not yet exist or where, or where people have turned their backs on God. And I think that's a way that the human community can begin to come together a little bit more by recognizing where God has been present with others. One last reference to this, um, and, and that is from Paul's letter to the Romans. Paul starts his letter to the Romans by noting that God has been speaking to everybody everywhere all the time. And, and people have been responding to God, sometimes positively, sometimes negatively, usually in a very mixed fashion, which is true of all of us, right? But God has been at work through all kinds of, of situations, through all of history, and everybody has had an opportunity and still does have an opportunity to know God, even though they may never have heard about Jesus. And in Romans, Paul introduces us and says, now in Jesus, we see finally and fully what God is doing. And so... Good Christian theology um, understands that God does things outside of the way we think God should do them, and that the boundaries that God sets on the community of faith are not our boundaries. Our boundaries are usually much more limited to say you're in or you're out, and I think that's a very dangerous thing to do. So if you want to talk more about that, we can. We should go on. Thank you for that question, though. Let's continue. Um, I'll tell you what I want to do. Let's see. Let me get to this because it will sort of complete our story. Let's go to chapter 21 verses. Um, no, let's not do that. Let's just keep going straight. It'll be too confusing. Okay, chapter 21. The Lord dealt with Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham gave the name Isaac to his son, whom Sarah bore him. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Now Sarah said, God has brought laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. And she said, who would ever have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. The child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, playing with her son Isaac. 
So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not inherit along with my son Isaac. The matter was very distressing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, do not be distressed because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for it is through Isaac that offspring shall be named for you. As for the son of the slave woman, I will make a nation of him also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered about in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she cast the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bowshot. For she said, Do not let me look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Do not be afraid, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Come, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make a great nation of him. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. She went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother got a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Okay, two big things happening here. Number one, Sarah has her child. We've been waiting, 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 waiting. Sarah has Isaac. The promise is fulfilled. When we sort of rehearse in shorthand version the story of the Old Testament, we talk about the creation and the fall, and the flood, and the restoration of all people. And then we talk about God coming to Abraham. And then we begin a geological or a genealogical rehearsal. Abraham, Isaac, Joseph, right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. That's the way we follow it, okay? We can't have that unless we have Isaac. Now we have Isaac. And so that's a big deal. What is Sarah's response? when she has Isaac? Joy. Joy. She laughs. She laughs. Sarah's about how old? 90? Okay. Do you think you're going to laugh when you have a kid at 90? <laughs> you laugh at the idea of having a child at 90, don't you? Yes, for really, really good reason. <laughs> Sure. I also think maybe Sarah's laughing at the absurdity of it. Really, God? <laughs> that could be part of what's happening here, right? But Sarah has great joy. They have Isaac. Now, the story of Isaac, Abraham does for Isaac what Abraham has been commanded to do. He marks him as a child of the covenant through circumcision. And, and then the story turns to another story that we've already heard about right? Hagar has already had Ishmael, and Sarah's not too happy about having them in the family for all of the understandable human reasons. And so Hagar is sent away. Abraham sends Hagar and Ishmael away. He gives them some provisions. They go out into the wilderness, wilderness and everything runs out. 
and Ishmael is about to die. There's great pathos in this story, actually. It's hard to pick up on it because it's told so economically and concisely. A woman's baby son is about to die, and so she goes and puts him under a tree, and then she gets as far away as she can because she doesn't want to watch him die. That's horrible, isn't it? That's horrible. But what happens? God rescues them. There is much in the history of Christianity, theologically and especially uh, historically as the, the story of faith has played out, that takes Hagar and Ishmael and Ishmael's people and treats them as if they are outcasts and says, God, God pushed them away. They were not part of the promise. And that's theologically true. You can say those words, but then if you take those words to a place that says that God didn't care about Ishmael, you can't go there. A lot of people divide the world between the people of, of the Judeo-Christian faith and everybody else, right? Especially now Muslims, right? Uh, Muslims who many of them trace their history to Ishmael. But God cared for Ishmael. God saved Ishmael. He said, I'm going to make of Ishmael a great nation as well. Again, there is nobody who is outside of the love of God. God God's intention is to take care of everybody. Right? And God takes care of Ishmael. Now, the story of Ishmael doesn't continue. That's not the main storyline. But that doesn't mean that Ishmael is somebody who can, and, and his descendants is someone that we can look down on, someone that we can say is excluded from God's promise and God's blessing, someone that is not worthy of our relationship and attention. God saved Ishmael. People all the time in Christian faith talk about, you know, are you saved? I think the next, I hadn't thought about this, but the next time somebody walks up and asks me, are you saved? I said, yes, I am saved just like God saved Ishmael. And see what they say. If they know their Old Testament, they're, oh, that could be an interesting conversation, couldn't it? <laughs> yes, and I'll say, I'm going to refer you to our young theology student, and she's going to answer that question. No, sorry. <laughs> Okay, so God takes care of Ishmael. What do you make out of this? Okay, I've talked about the story a little bit. What, what bubbles up in the story for you? Yes. His age. Age. Why, yes, why is he called a boy when he's really almost 20? Yeah, who knows? I, okay, here's what I would say. A lot of the stories, just like the story of Abraham, Sarah, and Abimelech, and the story of Abraham, Sarah, and Pharaoh... A lot of the stories are told over and over again, and there's similarity in them, and it's very difficult to place the timing of everything, right? And so just like, just like our family stories that we tell, uh, we've just spent a lot of time with the kids over Christmas time, and inevitably the conversations in our family turn to all the Christmases we've shared together, and it's fascinating to hear my children tell the stories about growing up and sharing Christmas, because I'm convinced now that they did not grow up in our family. <laughs> right? 
Hey, Dad, remember when? I, no, son, I don't. <laughs> right? Uh, think about, think, you know, uh, who is, oh, Skip, Skip Cox has been sending me this daily thing that talks about United States history. A lot of it we've, we've been covering, uh, covering, no, Penny, it's okay, I love this stuff. <laughs> um, it covers American history, we're in Revolutionary War history, right? And every day I read something, some of which I knew 40 years ago, but I forgot, and a lot of which I didn't know. And it's amazing, the, how many of you know about the Revolutionary War, right? What was the Revolutionary, how would you summarize the Revolutionary War? Independence from Britain, okay? Well, that's the summary of the story, okay? But it's way more complicated. There's way more stories and all of that. And so the story told here, we're covering, you know, tens of years of history in the life of Abraham and all kinds of stories with all kinds of people. And it's no wonder that the stories get a little bit confused, a little bit conflated or expanded or replicated or told in different ways. And that's what's going on here. Some people will take that fact about the stories of Scripture and say, well, they tell different stories, they contradict each other, it's not the same thing, therefore we can't trust it. Well, that's ridiculous. If, if, you, if you look at the news story of, of the football player who collapsed on Monday night, for instance, right? And read several different versions of the story, you're going to hear a lot of different things. And that was just two days ago. And that was, that was recorded on live TV, right? So, but it's the same story. We trust the essential message of that story. A young football player collapsed and is still fighting for his life, okay? So the essential story of Scripture, the actual truth of the story is there. You just have to tease apart all the different things that, that, that are a little bit confusing in that, and you get to the fundamental message. And the fundamental message is... Abraham and Sarah decided to try to force God's hand and have a kid in a way that God did not plan. And it created issues, human issues, but God still took care of the people that were outside of the actual plan. That's the fundamental story. Thank you for raising that question. That brings up some important things. Yes, follow up here. The other thing is, is that, sorry, the other thing is, is that later on we see when Abraham dies, mm -hmm. Ishmael and Isaac are together, mm -hmm. which means that somehow or another in that whole history that we have missed, because Abraham and Ishmael are still related and they still respect each other. Yeah, they're half-brothers. Yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly. There is so much in the stories that I'd like to go back and learn about, right? But that's going to require time travel or lots of time spent talking to Abraham and Sarah and Ishmael and Hagar and all those folks once I get to heaven. Isn't that what a heaven is, sitting and visiting with people? I don't, okay, back here. Oh, sorry, I, I'm surprised. I'm oh, sorry. I'm surprised at the cruelty that Sarah had to Hagar and her son, especially after the joy that she had in having mm -hmm. her son. Mm -hmm. so. mm -hmm. Yeah, surprised at her cruelty. Um, well, welcome to the characters of Scripture. None of them were perfect, right? And isn't, isn't Sarah's response perfectly human and understandable? Right? Yeah, in a sense, this is the second time she sent Hagar away. Yeah. Yeah. The Bible is full of extremely human characters. 
And that's the way it is. Yeah. Let's finish this off because I see that we're running out of time. Okay, the promise is fulfilled. Isaac is born. And then as the story continues, we come back to Abimelech. At that time, this is chapter 21, starting with verse 22. At that time, Abimelech, with Phicol, the commander of the army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my offspring or with my posterity, but as I have dealt loyally with you, you will deal with me and with the land where you have resided as an alien. And Abraham said, I swear it. When Abraham complained to Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Abraham set apart seven ewe lambs of the flock. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? And he said, These seven ewe lambs you shall accept from my hand, in order that you may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore that place was called Beersheba, because there both of them swore an oath. When they had made a covenant at Beersheba, Abimelech, with Phicol, the commander of his army, left and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham resided as an alien many days in the land of the Philistines. Okay, this is not a passage that people memorize usually (laughs) or that preachers preach about a whole lot. But there's something really important going on here, right? And the really important thing is that Abraham and Abimelech, their households, their their tribes are living side by side for a while, and they have to work out things among themselves. Water rights, right? Who owns this well? And they, they create a covenant, a contract, right? The contract is sealed and signed with the gift of the, of the lambs, uh, and they live side by side for a while. That seems completely unremarkable to us, doesn't it? How many thousands of times or millions of times has that kind of story been repeated in human history, right? That's a, I'll, I'll, have any of you signed a contract today or signed one yesterday? You know, I've been texting back and forth with a church member that's been working on buying a house, right? Oh, we got this house. No, we didn't get that house. Blah, 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 blah. That's just the normal stuff of life. Well, I, this story is here partly to explain to us how the, the place of Beersheba got its name, But it's also partly to explain to us that Abraham and Sarah lived normal human lives of their day and did normal human things of their day, all of it within the promise and the plan and the presence of God, right? It was really important that Abraham and Abimelech decide how they're going to get along with each other and that they don't go to war with each other and kill each other over this well. And they managed to do that. And I would propose to you that the vast majority of faithful life lived in the light of God's presence, living by God's truth, is about the simple business of living life every day in a way that respects and honors and encourages and promotes and actually accomplishes successful human life on the planet. Abraham didn't wipe out Abimelech. Abimelech didn't wipe out Abraham. And the story continues. 
And that should be good news because most of your lives today are going to be incredibly routine. And that's the way it should be. It's the non-routine that gets us in trouble sometimes. That's the, the importance that I take. There's a lot of other things you can pull from this. Is there anything bubbling up in you that, as I use, what do I usually say? If it's bubbling up in you and you're going to explode if you don't say it, then say it. If, oh, here we go. Ruth is about to explode. Quick. <laughs> I've had patients ask me, why did your God let this happen to me? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I had to pray, can I really respond? Mm-hmm. How can I respond? Mm-hmm. That's a really, really good question that we don't have time to answer right now. No. <laughs> and it's really just a comment, right? Somehow or other, in the midst of all the comings and goings, the successes and the failures, things happening the way we want them to and things happening the way they actually do happen, God still is at work. Right? All good? Let's pray. Thank you, God, for the rain we're getting today. Thank you for the showers of blessings that you bring into our lives. Thank you for being present with us even when everything seems to go wrong. Thank you for being our God and for being faithful to us even when we are unfaithful to you. Help us to live today in such a way that honors you and honors all those who are part of our lives for the sake of the love that Jesus has shown us. Amen. The Lord willing, we'll see you next week.